Welcome to the 1208-Bit Nerd Church Podcast, where nerd culture and faith intersect as we comment on the spiritual themes that arise in the different mediums that we nerds love. Today we're taking a look at some of the insights brought to light by Bandai Namco's latest JRPG, Tales of Arise, which is hands down the most enjoyable RPG I've played in years. But hey, we can hardly talk about this game without spoilers, so if you plan on playing the game first, go do it, and we'll see you back here after. Before we get to the themes, let me give you a quick review of the game. It's no small thing these days for me to say that I loved an RPG. While I have played many throughout my life, it's rare that I've actually finished any I've started over the last decade. This is partially because the grind usually wears me down, literally to the point that I have fallen asleep while playing RPGs. But the main thing that killed my enjoyment of the genre was the auto-battle function that some games have offered. Once I tried that function out, I realized that my battling was so perfectly predictable by the game that I had become pointless. <laughs> Since the main focus of the game was battles, and it could do that without me, some RPGs really just needed me to walk around a map, which seemed a little boring. But Tales of Arise isn't quite like that. While it's true that you'll be tired of grinding against the same enemies over and over again by the end of the game, the combat system is consistently challenging and requires you to pay attention at all times. Miss a few too many real-time dodges and you'll have exhausted all of your power on healing before you ever find a new campsite to recover it. Tales of Arise is a good challenge. It was rare that I beat any boss without being just a few hits away from dying. Its story is also so full of secrets that you keep on pushing through the grinding just so you can get to the next twist. And it's to that story that will now turn. Perhaps the most central theme to this Tales game is that of racism and slavery and the many different forms it can take. On that topic, the game actually has a lot of insightful things to say, though I imagine that for some of us in an American context, the game's lessons may possibly get washed out, or should I say whitewashed out, by the fact that nearly all the main characters are white. With the many important conversations we're having in America on slavery and racism and its ever-lingering effects, it may feel a bit unsavory to have a bunch of white characters talk about the lessons they've learned as slaves as though they might be talking down to non-white races that have actually endured it. But it's important to listen to any story based on the world the writers have constructed, and in this case, here in Tales of Arise, it's not a racism based around color, but a racism built around magic. In Tales of Arise, the Renans are capable of magical abilities, while the Danans, at least typically, are not. Racism takes on a different scenario in the five realms throughout the Danan world. In the first realm, Lord Balsif forces his slaves into a series of never-ending labor. They are subjected to task after task with only the most basic amenities keeping them going. Balsif's treatment of his slaves feels reminiscent of the way the Book of Exodus speaks of Pharaoh's oppression of the Hebrews. They set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. 
Of course, this form of slavery isn't just ancient, but recent as well. After all, the American empire found its foundation on the back of slaves as white people oppressed black people to build their economy in some of the most disturbing ways imaginable. The Bible sees the work of the enemy in this kind of treatment of one another, which you can see not only in the fact that God goes on to liberate the Hebrews from their Egyptian slave masters, but also in Exodus's use of the Hebrew words Lebanah and Chomer, that is, brick and mortar. The last time these Hebrew words surfaced in the scriptures was in Genesis 11, in reference to building the Tower of Babel, which was made out of Lebanah and Chomer, brick and mortar. While the Tower of Babel is seen by many to be a strange story about how God apparently hates skyscrapers, archaeological studies have shown us that in ancient Mesopotamia, buildings that were described as having their tops in the heavens, which is how the Tower of Babel is described in the Bible, those were actually buildings we refer to today as ziggurats. These ancient buildings had stairs that led to a little room at the top. The idea was simple. Ancient people gathered that if they could build a room close to the heavens, perhaps the gods would stop by and walk downstairs to meet them on the earth. They lived up there, so this was a way to get down here. This, of course, was the real problem with the Tower of Babel. God had just restarted the world via a great flood that had wiped everything out, and here was a leftover humanity pursuing the false gods. And these are the same false gods that Pharaoh built his own brick-and-mortar kingdom upon in Exodus. These key words, Lebanah and Homer, remind us that God is not behind empire, which in Pharaoh's time was built on the back of slaves. Rather, God's heart aches for the slave that is persecuted by the empire of the false gods. But now let's leave the very start of the Bible and jump to the very end. In the book of Revelation, John spends a lot of time painting a picture of Satan at work in the ways of empire. This is in part because empire always tramples over others to the delight of its own benefit. John gets this point across in the character he creates named Lady Babylon. She is pictured as an unpleasant drunk woman who is open to doing every immoral act in the book all the while murdering any Christians who get in her way and drinking their blood like a vampire. Being a depiction of empire, she is very wealthy, and her wealth was made on the backs of, quote, Revelation, slaves, that is, human souls. There it is, slaves. The Tower of Babylon at the beginning, still alive in Lady Babylon at the end. Alive in Egypt at the beginning, and still alive in America today as we continue to look around and realize not only the effects that slavery has had even into today's culture, but even the slave trade that goes on that is happening all around the world, including in America and things like human trafficking. This same kind of Babylonian oppression is pictured well at the hands of Lord Balsef in the first realm of Dana and Tales of Arise, though it's pictured even more severely at the hands of Almadria, the Lord of the Fourth Realm. She is possibly the most disturbing lord in the game who ultimately saw her slaves as truly nothing more than a means to an end. I mean, that's always how slavery works, right? But in her case, she even killed a whole crowd of slaves just to soak up their energy to boost her magic. For her, even the deaths of her slaves, and not just their lives, served as a means to get what she wanted. 
Now, of course, few games operate pacifistically, shout out to Undertale, and so Tales of Arise's response to slavery is generally that of violence. Honestly, given the ultimate story they try to tell throughout the game and the themes they constantly address from beginning to end, the constant fighting causes some of the game's main points to fall a bit flat. For example, there's one part where you discover one of the main characters that you have on your team, they once killed someone causing gasps among your party. <laughs> and all you can think of during that scene is the hundreds of people you've slayed since the game started. I mean, I get it. It's a video game, and such games typically revolve around combat systems, so I'm not gonna come down too hard on it, but it was kind of funny how standard game mechanics got in the way of messaging in this case, as the game often tried to preach a different kind of idea. Personally, Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount have convicted me to become what I often call a Jesus pacifist. And what better example do we have of Jesus pacifism going face to face with racism than Martin Luther King Jr., who took the peaceful tactics of Jesus and put them to the test, proving that such techniques are far more powerful than some might have ever imagined. Had it not needed to be a playable video game, Tales of Arise might have told such a story itself. As a video game, it's filled to the brim with battles, as you might expect. But fighting our battles the Jesus way requires us to think in the form of the cross. It's unpleasant and often unsatisfying. But if God can sink to our level and put on human flesh, and then wrap a towel around himself and wash his disciples' feet like a common slave would have done in his time, then changing the world the Jesus way is going to take some creativity, to say the least. Simply oppressing our oppressors will not go on to change anything. It may change the power dynamics of a society, but it won't change the fabric of those dynamics, like peaceful tactics will. And actually, the game does try to address that topic as well, which we'll get into now. All right, let's return to a character we already mentioned, Almadria, the Lord of the Fourth Realm. When you first arrive at the Fourth Realm, you discover that the Danans have chased Almadria out of town and overthrown and killed the Renans who used to live there. Now, on one side of the coin, this should sound familiar, as that's more or less what you and your team have been doing throughout the game, walking into towns, killing their lords and their servants, and trying to change the power dynamics. That being said, kudos to the writers for scripting into their game a scenario that proves that redemptive violence doesn't work, or for at least being willing to agree that it sometimes doesn't work. Not long after you arrive at the Fourth Realm, you meet Deadeye, the leader of the Danon Rebellion, and he is a complete tool. He doesn't listen to anyone, he acts like a jerk, and he thinks he can do no wrong. Your team partially finds him repulsive because in order to seize control of the realm, he had to set off bombs that killed his own people. And the more Deadeye talks, the more you realize he's fueled by racism and hatred. The oppressed has become the oppressor. And you quickly realize that there is no difference between him and Almadriel. He might be on the underdog team that we're rooting for, but he plays just as dirty as his enemies. In his trilogy of books, The Powers, Bible scholar Walter Wink explains what he famously coined the domination system. And it's essentially what we see at play here in Dead Eye's story. 
In his third book in the series, Engaging the Powers, Walter Wink boldly declares, forcible resistance transforms itself into what it opposes. As long as we continue to justify violence as Christian, we will remain blind to our own captivity to the hypnosis of mimetic rivalry. We really do have to choose whether to continue to support the domination system driven as it is by the myth of redemptive violence. This is the great divide that separates the gospel from all the apparently compelling justifications provided by the ideological counterfeit of the gospel. Any religious message that promises that we can win in the terms laid down by the domination system is apostate. Any theology that promises success, national supremacy, or victory through redemptive violence is apostate. Any piety that equates the gospel with getting ahead, being number one, or salvation through patriotism is apostate. Falling into the cycle of this domination system is pretty natural for most of us. Uh, to some extent, it's even built into us. For example, when your amygdala goes into alarm mode, it shuts down the part of your brain that is associated with relational connection, empathy, impulse control, self-reflection, moral judgment, conscience, and so on. Its point in doing this is to help you survive in threatening situations, but the unfortunate side effect is that it can make us less human towards each other. Deadeye becomes the embodiment of the domination system. He is nothing but an amygdala on high alert. He's justified the unthinkable, and his hatred ultimately becomes his demise when he finds Almadria and leads a huge crowd to burn her alive. Little does he know that he's walking into a trap that will end up killing him and the entire crowd. Forcible resistance transforms itself into what it opposes. Walter Wink had it right. How many times have you seen that happen? Leave us your story in the comments. When we get to the third realm, the game adds an unexpected twist. Well, actually all this game really is is unexpected twists. Wait, does that make unexpected twists expected? I don't know, moving on. After defeating the two evil lords of the first two realms, we enter the third realm where things seem to be just dandy. Seriously, Danans and Renans here seem to get along just fine. Uh, but since the second realm had a crazy twist to it, uh, you end up being super skeptical of this third realm. I mean, what's really going on in the background? Uh, there's gotta be something wrong here, right? You soon meet Dolahim, the lord over this realm, and he altogether seems like a pretty pleasant guy. Adding to his trustworthiness is the fact that his chief guard is technically a Danon slave, and she's devoted to him so much that she would die for him. I mean, seriously, what's the catch here? Did Dolahim hypnotize everyone? Is there something in the water? Does this even qualify as slavery exactly? Well, yes, because it is the Danans who do all the hard work while the Renans take it easy and enjoy life. Uh, but the Danans seem so fine with it that you're left asking a lot of questions. You eventually unraveled the mysteries that went on to create this odd scenario in the third realm, but the game does something absolutely unexpected here. Lord Dolahim, the third boss in the game that you've come to test your skills against, agrees with you that things must change, and then joins your party for the next 30 hours of the game. Honestly, 
This was one of the most shocking parts of the narrative to me, and probably the part of the story where the message of enemy love shined brightest. I mean, sure, Dolahim was nowhere near as bad as the other lords, but he was just that. A lord, a bad guy, a boss even. And yet, he becomes your teammate. Outside of Tales of Arise, bad guys usually die horribly in our media, uh, even our children's media. I mean, Radigan fell off the top of Big Ben in The Great Mouse Detective, Gaston fell off a balcony into a rocky ravine in Beauty and the Beast, Judge Claude Frollo fell into a pit of fire in The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Mother Gothel rapidly aged and then fell out of a tower to her death entangled, Maleficent was stabbed in the heart and fell off a cliff in Sleeping Beauty. Clayton fell off a tree and accidentally hung himself in the vines in Tarzan. The evil queen fell off a cliff and was crushed by a boulder in Snow White. Scar fell off a cliff and was ripped apart by hyenas in The Lion King. Shan Yu rode a firework into a building and exploded in Mulan. Sykes was run over by a train in Oliver and Company. Hopper was eaten alive by birds in A Bug's Life. Ursula was impaled by a ship and then struck by lightning in The Little Mermaid. And Syndrome was sucked into an airplane engine in The Incredibles. My point is, bringing a video game boss onto your team was a bold move and unusual, but Tales of Arise does it. And it was also the perfect move for the game's messaging. And for it's at this point that the game starts to ask the question, what if we were able to look beyond race and other dividing lines and realize that deep down we're all the same? Human. This is actually important messaging in the Bible right from the get-go. It's important to realize that the Bible is full of polemic. That is to say that it often tells stories in intentional ways to counteract the theological and spiritual messaging of the world around them. So, when we look at the writing of different ancient cultures, we realize that many creation stories were created to bolster the author's race as the race, the race of the gods even. In that light, all other races were lesser than or subhuman. You can imagine how this kind of thinking would make it easy for one race to treat another race as slaves. But from the beginning of Genesis, the Bible offers a polemic against this kind of thinking. It does not qualify this race or that race or even the Hebrew race of God's chosen people as the race of God. It, instead, it claims that humanity as a whole is made in the image of God. Therefore, to be human is to be on the same level of playing field as the human next to you regardless of where they land on the socioeconomic ladder, regardless of what race they are. And therefore, we, from the Bible's understanding, should be a race full of empathy for one another at every turn. After befriending Lord Dolahim, empathy becomes a central point in Tales of Arise, and it follows it all the way to the end. Danins and Renans start to get along as they grow to know one another and treat each other as they would treat themselves. They put faith and trust in one another and even offer forgiveness to those who have wronged them. The game even goes so far as to offer the final bad guy in the entire game forgiveness for all the wrongs he has committed against humanity. Another twist rarely found in any story outside of the cross of Jesus. 
But Tales of Arise finds empathy to be central to its messaging time and time again. So much so that the main character even has to clarify at one point that he's not saying that the evil things people do are okay, just that he's looking to understand what made them do evil things in the first place. He wants to empathize with their pain and the pain that caused them to become what they've become and then forgive them for what they've done. This is a fair clarification that evil things are not okay just because we forgive them because biblical forgiveness is not telling people that the evil they did was okay. It's not even telling them that, oh, it's all right, it wasn't a big deal. Actually, forgiveness is just the opposite. It's a recognition that something wasn't okay and that it was a big deal. But then it's making the choice from there to say, though you owe me a debt for what you did to me, I've chosen to forgive you that debt. You're free. And perhaps we might add, go and sin no more. A little bit of empathy can go a long way and give us a space to humanize and forgive the people around us who are made in the image of God, just like we are. This is important to do. After all, Jesus requires us to forgive. So if empathy can help us get there, it's a gift we should embrace. My favorite quote from Henry Nouwen perhaps says it best. Compassion grows with the inner recognition that your neighbor shares your humanity with you. This partnership cuts through all walls which might have kept you separate. Across all barriers of land, language, wealth, and poverty, knowledge, and ignorance, we are one, created from the same dust, subject to the same laws, and destined for the same end. With this compassion, you can say, in the face of the oppressed, I recognize my own face. In the hands of the oppressor, I recognize my own hands. Their flesh is my flesh. Their blood is my blood. Their pain is my pain. Their smile is my smile. Their ability to torture is in me too. Their capacity to forgive, I find also in myself. There is nothing in me that does not belong to them too. Nothing in them that does not belong to me. In my heart, I know their yearning for love and down to my entrails, I can feel their cruelty. In another's eyes, I see my plea for forgiveness, and in a hardened frown, I see my refusal. When someone murders, I know that I too could have done that. And when someone gives birth, I know that I am capable of that as well. In the depths of my being, I meet my fellow humans with whom I share love, and hate, life, and death. So what about you? Do you think you could have empathy for a heavy slave master like Egypt? It might help to remember that before Egypt persecuted the Hebrews, the Hebrews persecuted Egypt. After all, Abraham, the man from whom all the Hebrews came from, had an Egyptian slave named Hagar, which is a play on the Hebrew word we translate as stranger or foreigner. And how did Abraham treat Hagar? How did Abraham treat the Egyptian foreigner among him? as a means to an end. When Abraham and Sarah were tired of waiting for God to give them a child, they turned Hagar into a sex slave of sorts. In their ancient culture, a woman could use her slave as a surrogate. And when the surrogate gave birth, the child would then technically belong to the slave master. Despite doing what she was commanded, Hagar was ultimately hated by her master and sent off into the wilderness to die, twice. And it was there that God met her at her lowest points and sustained her life. Just as he would one day meet the Hebrews at their lowest points and sustain their lives. 
just as he meets us at our lowest points and sustains our lives. In the character of Hagar, the Bible is foreshadowing what is to come in Egypt. And in that foreshadowing, the scriptures want us to remember that before Egypt persecuted the Hebrews, the Hebrews persecuted an Egyptian. Before the ways of empire were found in them, the ways of empire were found in us. Babylon is not just out there. It can be right next to us inside of our hearts. Therefore, we can't point the finger at someone else without first pointing the finger at ourselves. Likewise, the pain in our own story should give us reason to empathize with others and to see them as human. In fact, in the Bible's legal writings, God often reminds Israel of their own story and attempts to get them to empathize with all of the overlooked people they encounter. Check out this rule. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. Empathy is crucial to loving others, be they strangers or friends or enemies. Uh, we can either look in one another's eyes and see the image of God, or we can grab some brick and mortar and build walls between us. Or worse, persecute those who are different than us, ultimately giving rise to the domination cycle that lives both in our amygdala and in the heart of Lady Babylon and Lady Babylon's own slave master, Satan. There are more great themes and tales of Arise that we could continue to hit on, but I think we've already said enough in this episode. Who knows, maybe we'll return with the part two. What themes did you see that we didn't get into here? Let us know in the comments below. 1208-Bit Nerd Church is a church based out of Jackson, Michigan. We meet in a hybrid form, both online and in person, on Mondays from 5.30 to 9 o'clock via our Discord channel, where we also chat online about all kinds of things throughout the week. On Mondays, doors open at 5.30, our main game of the night starts at 6, spiritual conversation happens at 7.30, and we offer space for free gaming after that until we wrap up at 9. You can come and go at your own convenience, and you'll find the link to join our Discord in the information to this episode. If you're watching this on YouTube, then you know the drill. Like, comment, and subscribe to keep the conversation going. Or if you're streaming this episode via our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to us on. All right, that's it for today's episode. We'll catch you all on Discord. 